As we continue to discuss what the Tokyo Olympics means for our current moment, I'd like to think specifically about place, what this means for our larger history of Japan to the Olympics. And perhaps as the readings discuss, the cultural formation and maintenance of the so-called East and the so-called West. We're joined again by Dr. Jules Boykoff, professor of political science at Pacific University and author of Power Games, the text for this course. The Olympics has been canceled before. Mm -hmm. um, and even to take it a step further, the Olympics has been canceled when Tokyo was a host city. Mm -hmm. um, so there is some you know, historical precedence, obviously not a pandemic related to World War II. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that previous canceled Olympics and kind of what kind of the aftermath or legacies you kind of see in these parallels? Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, this 2020 Olympics wasn't the first time, as you say, that Tokyo had its Olympic experience scuppered by calamity. In 1940, Tokyo was supposed to host the Summer Games only to have its own imperialistic ambitions get in the way. Um, the Olympics were given to Tokyo in 1936 to host them. They beat out Helsinki. This was, um, in, so this was 1936, they were given the Olympics. It was only five years prior that Japanese forces had invaded Manchuria and swiftly installed a puppet government there. So this kind of, I think, throws into question the IOC's often proclaimed belief that the Olympics fostered peace and goodwill because it didn't outweigh the IOC's desire to spread across the globe. I mean, Tokyo was supposed to be the first Asian city to host the games in 1940. Um, Another sort of historical footnote that I found interesting was basically the Tokyo Bitters cut a deal with Benito Mussolini, another fascist, where Mussolini would not put forth the Rome bid for the 40, 1940 Olympics. Instead, he'd back Tokyo's 1940 bid in a sort of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Then Tokyo would turn around and support Rome's bid for 1944. But you know, once Japan got the games and Tokyo got those 1940 Olympics, they decided to invade China. I guess imperial aggressors are going to aggress. And so um, they invaded China after they were given the Olympics. Uh, this ended up setting off the Second Sino-Japanese War. You had people standing up in France, Great Britain, the United States, who wanted to boycott the Tokyo Olympics. Um, so again, sort of another, a parallel to today where athletes stood up and really took the lead. Uh, but the IOC didn't budge. It kept saying, oh, no, you know, we can't mix sports and politics. Stop doing that. And until finally the Japanese minister of war himself spoke out and said, no, we should really be focusing our efforts and resources on war. Shortly thereafter, the Tokyo folks running those 1940 games pulled out. Um, so, you know, the parallels are kind of striking in, in a lot of ways, except that the games were moved to Helsinki in 1940, only to have them canceled after Russia invaded Finland. And so um, those games were ultimately canceled, but who knows? Like I say, I, if the cancellation could be the end game here for Tokyo 2020, depending on what happens with the coronavirus. You know, one other kind of tiny thing about those Olympics that I found really interesting was that the organizers of Tokyo 1940 were really keen to continue these various Olympic traditions. And one of those was to continue the Olympic torch relay, which had only been created as an Olympic tradition four years prior when Adolf Hitler and the Nazis started the torch relay as a way not just to drum up interest in the Olympic Games, but also to drum up support for the Nazi regime, 
Well, the Japanese organizers for 1940 said they'd continue on with that transition. And that didn't seem to bother the IOC at all. In fact, they didn't seem, the IOC was not bothered at all by the Nazis. In fact, when Sapporo, who was supposed to host the 1940 Winter Olympics, and those were obviously canceled too and moved along, when they were moved along, uh, the IOC moved them to a city in Germany where the Nazis were ruling. I mean, it was clear that the IOC had no qualms with what was happening in Nazi Germany. So some of the parallels I, I found a little bit haunting when I look back in more detail at them. And also the way that they were covered in, in the US press was really fascinating. Wow. I mean, I think this, you know, one of the things as we're going through and, and reading um, power games is really giving us this great layout of how these historical moments, right? These, these traditions, whether it's the establishing what the length and distance of the marathon is officially at 26.2 miles, whether it's thinking about things like the, mm -hmm. the ways that there are these historical moments that, it, that are tried out one year and a look because of these either sociopolitical moments going on or because that's just how the route had to be created or all these things that set the framework where we establish the Olympics as something that we do summer or winter every two years. And so I think even the, the provocation of being like, let's get rid of the Olympics period, not just this year, mm -hmm. um, is because people are used to all of these things um, and may not have the historical understandings of where these things come from, the relationship of the IOC to history, mm -hmm. um, the various ways the IOC has been on the wrong side of history. Mm -hmm. In your new book, you're offering us in a completely different set of folks that are rethinking about what the Olympics does and doesn't do for us. Um, and so can you talk just a little bit about um, these activists opposed to the Olympics, the no Olympic movement, um, and think and tell us kind of what you found in, in your work um, and thinking about diff, a, a new way of thinking about the Olympics. Yes, yeah, so while Olympic history doesn't repeat itself exactly, there are times when it rhymes. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do in, in Power Games is sort of tease out those historical rhyming moments and try to figure out what's actually happening. And through time, because of some of the things that we've been talking about today, more and more people have become disgruntled with the way the Olympics are run, become concerned with some of the patterns like overspending of money uh, or the militarization of your city when you host the Olympics or the displacement of poor and working people from the Olympic city to make way for venues and nice homes for rich people to live in, gentrification as well, false promises. More and more people are becoming aware of those dynamics. And as that happens, more and more movements have popped up in various aspiring Olympic cities, anti-Olympics movements that use that history against the International Olympic Committee and really question whether their city should host those Olympics. And so I have had the good fortune of living in London in the lead up to and during the 2012 London Olympics. I had the good fortune of living in Rio de Janeiro in 2015 and 16 in the lead up to those games. And in both of those cities, I got to know everyday people in the Olympic city who are challenging the basic logic of the Olympics. And so I kind of feel like I've been able to see with my own eyes the rise of this sort of global anti-Olympics activist push. And I hesitate to call it a global activist movement because movements, according to social movement scholars, are sustained through time. 
And what we've more seen with anti-Olympics activism is that it pops up in one city only to then go back down as soon as the Olympics are over when activists go back to their everyday activism. It's sort of like a big old game of sort of like activist whack-a-mole to use an older <laughs> metaphor. I'm not sure we'll work with the young folks because it's like you got to go to the fair and try to play that game. Anyways, that could all be changing uh, because of the fact that the Los Angeles pushback, which is a group called No Olympics LA, which is under the Democratic Socialists of America LA chapter, it could be changed because they have been pushing for a more of a transnational movement. We've seen all these activist moments in the past, whether it's London, Rio, or whatever, but Los Angeles is trying to change that dynamic and create an anti-Olympics movement that's transnational in nature. And so last summer, No Olympics LA teamed up with activists in Tokyo and created this first ever anti-Olympics international summit. And I had the good fortune of attending that event with a number of scholars, as well as the journalist Dave Zirin of The Nation magazine. And he and I wrote up a bunch of articles for The Nation about uh, that experience attending those various events. We traveled to Fukushima where the triple whammy earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown occurred and got to really talk to these activists and figure out what was really animating them. And so there's no question that when an Olympic, aspiring Olympic city wants to host the games, they're going to be met with tough questions from locals who will be drawing on the pool of information that scholars, critical journalists, human rights workers, and others have put together and that activists have really animated into the public sphere in ways that just weren't the case 10 years ago. And so right now it's fascinating when a city decides that they wanna host the Olympics, and I should rephrase that and say, when the elites of a city decide that they wanna host the Olympics, because it's never like, you know, I'm a working guy down at, you know, Walmart or something, and I think we should host the Olympics and I'm gonna put all my resources into it. That just doesn't happen. So it's the elites of the city, but whenever they do that, they're met with fight back, a little bit of pushback that can turn into fight back. And I think what's happening in Los Angeles, and that's what my new book is about, is really, really interesting. I mean, you've got people that come out of Hollywood, so they come with major skills here. You know, there's one person on the film crew who had his own film on Netflix that he directed and produced. You know, you got folks that have been working on really high-tech video games. I mean, the film crew in Los Angeles alone is incredible. They've been able to tap into um, various celebrities in Los Angeles who are concerned about hosting the Olympics. They had James Adomian, the comedian, who does that incredible Bernie Sanders impression. They had James Adomian do some uh, skits for them that they've been using to sort of spread the word about the issues around the Olympics in LA. And so, I would say that's kind of the thing to watch moving forward is what is No Olympics LA going to do? They're funny, uh, they're serious, and they're really changing the way that folks are thinking about the games in Los Angeles. And so it's in Los Angeles, it's in all these different cities, but for me, anti-Olympics activism is a thing for us all to keep an eye on moving forward. Wow, it's really incredible. And to think about what the media potential of that is as well. Well, thank mm -hmm. you so much for joining us. It's been incredible, Dr. Jules Boykoff author of Power Games, our key text for this course, as well as No Olympians, an incredible book that everyone should be reading right now as we sit in the midst of this pandemic. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. you, Dr. Cox. Really love what you're doing. You take care. In Christian Tagsall's 2010 piece on the 1964 Olympics, we once again see the Olympics emerge as a symbol of modernity. 1964 had a lot of political significance for Japan, showing it made it out of World War II, 
and into this major space as a global player. Architecture and landscape are one way of doing this, as the article argues, um, and is its primary focus. In many ways, Tagsold and others that we read throughout this term argue that sport operates as a mechanism to show you quote unquote made it as a country. Going back to 1940, as Dr. Jules Boykoff discussed before, Tokyo gave back the Olympics as it entered into war with China in its attempts to become this imperial power once again. Those games were moved to Helsinki, who was kind of like the backup second place to hosting that Olympics. And eventually they were canceled due to the impact and spread of World War II. So in 1964, in preparation for those Olympics, Japan had asked the U.S. military to give back prime real estate that had previously been Japanese barracks before becoming part of the installation of the U.S. government in Japan post-World War II. In many ways, we see the literal building of the Olympics on top of warfare and its remnants. Tagsall writes, quote, the return of Washington Heights, which is the area, meant coming to terms with recent history and symbolically ending occupation in the capital. That the American military base had been a home of Japanese militarism until 1945 was more or less ignored in 1964, end quote. This history, as Tagsall argues, was inconvenient to the narrative that Japan was trying to build for the Olympics. A lot of this piece goes into these very specific parts of the architecture of the Olympics and what was going on architecturally for Tokyo at the time. In reading into this architecture, there can be this kind of moment of so what? But what's important about what space, the use of space, and what we build upon it tells us about our values, our investment, whether it's financial or cultural, and the history of a city or country. One of the examples given is the Axis architecture of Italy and Japan when Rome is hosting the Olympics as well as the Tokyo Olympics in the 60s um, was very much absent in Munich in the 70s. In many ways, what Germany is trying to do differently from its Axis previous Axis partners of Italy and Japan is distance itself from its Nazi history as much as possible. That's really important to think about. And so I think even when we go into the Manzan Writer piece, Wolfram Manzan Writer writes the piece um, about global movement, sports spectacles, and the transformation of representational power, there's this way that sport is acknowledged by him as a global cultural property on page 37. In many ways, when we think about what's going on right now with the Tokyo Olympics for 2020 slash 2021, pandemic is seen as this global political problem and is treated politically by a lot of countries, the United States especially. But sport as a global cultural property is important to think about why the Olympics matter, why it's important to still have them in the midst of this global political problem that is COVID-19. Manton Ryder argues for sportscapes to be incorporated into this notion of other scapes like media scapes that are brought in as the signs of postmodernity. that is the current era that we're in now where we're understanding the global movement of technology media people finances in a completely different way than we did previously sportscapes manson writer argues is quote characterized by the transnational flows of physical culture ideologies and practices centering on the body end quote so some of the examples that are given are global sporting good brands, think about your Nikes and Adidas, the international reach of sports media, and mega sporting events like the Olympics. 
Manzanwriter argues that there is an asymmetric power relation involved here between the centers and the peripheries of Olympic power. And that's very much like what we talked about with Dr. Boykoff in terms of thinking about who is centric, who's on that executive board, who can be represented in the rooms that make the decisions, and who's on the peripheries, who can host the games, right? The term subalternity is brought up. This culture of resistance to and or acceptance of domination and hierarchy. These things aren't mutually like we accept the domination that's placed on us or we always fight back. Subalternity is the way we think about this, what we think about as a group of people that are dominated, but also resist and push back. We think about those activists he's discussing and that are part of this longer um, trajectory to push back against the Olympics as something that they do not want in their city. They don't want to be a host city. The Spivak quote um, that's referenced is really asking, Spivak asks, can the subaltern speak? Can those who are marginalized that do want to resist, where is their space for them? And much of this is operating at these very small tangible pieces. Manzanwriter says that there are these four major steps towards incorporation into Pierre de Coubertin's notion of Olympism. This is on page 41. The first is the right to participate. Being a country, being a nation state is not enough to participate in the Olympics. You must be recognized by the International Olympic Committee. The second, once you are allowed to participate and you are acknowledged, you are read as legible, you have to win medals. You have to ascend the medal count. It matters not that you win medals as an individual participant or a team, but also the way that is tallied into how well your country does. The third step is to bid and win the games. You've ascended, you're recognized as a major player on the Olympic stage, and now you put in your bid, your contender, you win the Olympic games in your host city. And finally, having that impact and that power, you get acknowledged and shape competitive body culture in some kind of way. That's most often, as we see in this article, through the incorporation of one of your cultural sports, right? So a sport that was created and shaped within your country becomes a marker of being represented every year, regardless if you are hosting, you are intricately involved in the shaping and maintenance of what it means to be Olympic, the acknowledgement of an Olympic sport. So the examples that are given and thinking about the impact of Asian countries specifically are judo in Japan and taekwondo in Korea and what that incorporation and acculturation into Olympism means in terms of a permanent marker of relevance. And with that acculturation, there's also a way that your culture is stripped away and there is a generic Olympic culture that is then applied, a generic sporting culture applied on top of that. One of the things I really want to clarify, and we'll talk about this more as we go through, is that when we talk about there's a section that really brings in all of the financials of what these countries um, are able to do in terms of the revenue generated from the Olympics. And when we talk about the money the Olympics bring in, we are talking about money made for the IOC, not the host city or country. That's important to think about when we talk about broadcast revenue, for example. Manzanwriter describes it as bypassing the host city. A host city is putting on this, this massive event for um, the IOC, and in turn, the IOC gets to make money off of said effort. 
One of the things that's also important to think about with the 1964 Olympics is they re represented men's writer rights. They represented tips at quote unquote westernizing certain aspects of the new Japan while also illustrating moments of remembering. It's not this one way directional of trying to acculturate to the West, but also acknowledging the role the West has had in these countries. This is seen in the torchbearer born in Hiroshima the day the U.S. dropped an atomic bomb on the city or the central symbolic role of the emperor. In 2008, when Beijing hosted the Olympics, there were three major kind of identifiers on terms of what we were supposed to take from those Olympic games. The first is the idea of the People's Olympics. The second is the high-tech Olympics. The third is the Green Olympics. These are the three major messaging mechanisms that China had for the world. This is also obviously conveyed many times in the opening ceremony, which we'll talk about later in this term, and the important way that a country has this opportunity to convey a message, this history of a country through this opening ceremony, as well as what they're looking towards in the future. However, as Manson Ryder argues, it's hard to convey the message of a changed country with all the other actors involved. And these actors include the media, corporate interests, activists, nonprofit groups, etc. And this particularly affects non-Western cities. They aren't seen as often or allowed to present their own image of self as often as Western cities in Western media. This becomes important to think about, and I really love the last quote, which is from Jonathan Friedman that's quoted by Manson Ryder, that quote, the dualist centralized world of the double East-West hegemony is fragmenting politically and culturally, but the homogeneity of capitalism remains as intact and as systematic as ever, end quote. And so what I think is really important to think about here is there is there are these dueling ideas and identities and ideologies that are attached to the idea of the East and the West. By the end, the corporate interests really do prevail. They are the lingering moments that we have. The media and the corporate interests really control and contain the messages, the ideas that we have about various countries. I'm excited to talk about this more next week as we think about the role of the nation state in these ideals of Olympism. And we'll talk about that through things like the 1936 Olympics in Berlin and what that means to our general understandings of the nation state, of human rights, um, of who can play, especially when a country is determining various things as to who can be considered a full citizen based on their identity racially or in terms of religion. Thanks for listening.